You may have noticed Owen protein shakes popping up everywhere, from CVS to Whole Foods to the middle-of-nowhere convenience store you just stopped at. But there's more to this plant-based brand than meets the tongue. Amid a confusing health food and beverage market crowded with buzzwords, Owen CMO Mark Olivieri has found that marketing a successful beverage brand comes down to knowing your customer and using data to inform decisions. Today, we're finding out exactly how he does that. I'm your host, Kara Hogan, and this is The Empowered Marketer. The Empowered Marketer is brought to you by Zayas, the CRM that helps you understand your buyers to build a compelling and comprehensive customer journey. Learn more at Zayas.com. That's Z-A-I-U-S.com. Owen, which stands for Only What You Need, is beloved by health enthusiasts, Instagram influencers, and fitness aficionados alike. But it's not just another protein shake. In fact, Mark Olivieri is actively filling a gap in the sports drink and meal replacement market. Owen is actually an acronym for Only What You Need. It's a 100% plant-based nutrition beverage platform that's free of the top eight allergens. I like to answer this question by first and foremost, like what, what Owen isn't. And Owen is defined by the fact that it isn't dairy. It isn't GMO. It's, there's no gluten in it. There's no nuts. There's no soy. Um, it's not made from ingredients that have 20 letters or that were concocted in a lab. It isn't supported by fake claims. It's not going to destroy your body. I mean, simply put, Owen is only what you need. And our brand is our brand mission. You know, we've done a really breakthrough thing here in the industry at large, not just nutrition and health and wellness, but within the industry to create new processes and new levels of transparency for the consumer to validate that we are the cleanest, uh, most transparent, modern nutrition beverage brand out there in the market today. Very cool. And so what about you? What's your professional background and what did you do before starting Owen? So I actually started in finance back in 2008 working at UBS. I decided to go to B-School at that time, which is the worst time to go to B-School for finance. The economy crashed. And that's how I ended ended up in marketing. You know, I, I never knew part of that, that marketing was truly brand strategy and business management. And you know, prior to business school, I always thought, you know, if I went to marketing, I'm going to be the person running Adobe suite, or I'm going to be the person on set, you know, with a camera in hand, like filming a commercial. When I learned that marketing or or brand was truly sitting at the center of, of the business, you know, I believe, and, and the way I was raised that, you know, marketing drives financial decisions in terms of pricing for the consumer. Marketing drives innovation. Marketing drives activation. It drives communication. It drives supply chain and how we source and what we source. Like marketing is truly at the center. And when I learned that, it really reaffirmed in me my desire to actually pursue this in full force because I always had a desire to to be an entrepreneur or to be more entrepreneurial uh, with my career. So after B school, I went to Haines Celestial where um, it was at the forefront of the natural products industry. I was on the snack business. Um, and it was a really exciting time because the natural products industry was just exploding and Hain was cutting edge at that time, growing from a $4 billion to $8 billion market cap. 
And I got to see the leaders that were coming to the organization and what their backgrounds look like. And they all had big CPG experience. And I quickly noticed that. And I was like, okay, if I want to be a GM, if I want to be a leader of a business one day, I need to get that training. So after a couple of years, I left Haines Celestial, went to PepsiCo, and I pursued my the training that I desired. At PepsiCo, I was at Frito-Lay and had a variety of roles uh, over a number of years uh, on the brand side, on some of the, you know, America's most favorite brands that you've heard of, like Cheetos and Doritos and Lays and Ruffles. I had some strategic projects on launching new business initiatives and new aisles, which was great and amazing to see how that is done, especially in a large organization. And then my last role there, uh, I was responsible for white space innovation, specifically for millennials. And I launched a brand in-house that was developed in-house called Imagine Snacks. And that was you know, one of the highlights of my career. I got to see the nuts and bolts of how a brand is created from the consumer validation to the consumer uh, discovery. After uh, PepsiCo, I decided to pursue my GM track. So I left there, went to a company called Nature's Bounty, where I was running the sports nutrition business. And myself and some other marketers from PepsiCo went over to Nature's Bounty. The goal was to IPO the company. Uh, so we were building these consumer stories for Wall Street that we are, for the first time, this brand, this business is going to be to invest in its brands. So we worked with some great agencies like Droga5 and TMA. Carlisle Group owned the company and KKR came in, bought them out, put a hold on all investment and basically started to liquidate the company. That triggered my exit. And that's how I ended up at Owen. So Owen is a brand that was created by two founders, uh, Jeff uh, Mraz and Catherine Moose. And uh, I was hire number two. Uh, Halen Brands purchased Owen pre-revenue, and they started to put the team and the resources behind it to really operationalize it. And so I, I came on about eight months prior to launch, and my time prior to launch was really focused on building that consumer story, building the positioning, building the channel strategy. Uh, and we launched the product online first, October of 17, with direct-to-consumer, quickly went to Amazon rolled out into Whole Foods and some other key customers and the rest is history. Amazing. So you really have a kind of a deep background specifically in food, it seems like, and food and beverage, I would say, maybe. And because of that background, how do you think about differentiating Owen from competitors and creating that space for the brand in a space that honestly is very crowded? Yeah. So the first level of analysis that we really took when understanding how Owen was going to be different was looking at what consumers are dissatisfied about in regards to the category and their consumption behavior. And what are they satisfied about? It became very clear very quickly that the category for decades, like literally decades, only offered confusion. For example, muscle milk. Is it milk or is it not milk? <laughs> Nutrition shakes with 26 grams of sugar. Is this healthy or is it not? Plant-based that tests with trace amounts of lactose, is it trustworthy or not? So this misinformation is something that really inspired our you know, initial positioning and communication strategy. And ultimately, what, where we landed is we're here to challenge the misinformation with cold, hard facts. For example, we test all of our products, as I mentioned, pre, during, and post-manufacturing to validate that we are, in fact, truly 100% plant-based which is important for the flexitarian, it's important for the vegan, it's important for just general clean eating, which is obviously on the rise here in the US and global. 
and to also validate that we're free from the top eight allergens, which means that we truly have no dairy, no soy, no peanuts, no tree nuts, no egg, no fish, no shellfish, et cetera. And that's important for 110 million Americans, which is about 35% of the US. And when we say that we're free of it, we truly are, because now we're dealing with life and death situations. And we, we, we test them, we get the results of our final uh, test from two independent third parties, and then we post those and publish them online so that the consumer can see uh, with full transparency what's in our product. We want to drive the skepticism out of the category and we want to build trust and credibility with the consumer. And it's working, right? About about 25% of our direct-to-consumer customers, for example, we know through survey that they have a dietary restriction for a medical reason. For example, they have a, a peanut allergy. But nearly 80% of our consumers score in the top two box for importance of, of our allergen testing protocol. And what this tells me is really two key points. One, we can quantify the brand equity impact of an allergen testing protocol, right? That gap between the 25% who need it versus the 80% who want it, that's huge. That's all brand equity that we're building through this truth and transparency message. And then the second thing it tells me is that we can clearly demonstrate that this truth and transparency uh, labeling extends beyond just those who need it, but there truly are people who don't need it, but want it. And so we're playing into that, into that uh, demand state. So how are we doing this? How are we getting this message across? And at the core, you know, we're just, we're data-driven company as, you know, as I suggested, you know, we're, we're here looking at data to make decisions. And there's two things you could do with data. You could either pull it or you can act on it. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to uncover why someone wants Owen, when do they want Owen, and how they're using Owen. And if we understand that, we could create unique customer journeys to target this messaging. Yeah, that was exactly my next question, which is, you know, you're finding these people who either have dietary restrictions or allergies or just want to eat in a very specific way. How do you identify them? How do you market to them? And what channels have been the most effective for that? Well, we started with the hypothesis of identifying, you know, what is that cult-like audience? You know, there's consumers, but at the epicenter of the consumer is the brand lover. And given the positioning that we identified in the market space before even launching, you know, we went after that cult brand lover, which we identify as, we call them the informed enthusiasts. Those are the ones who have dietary restrictions, either voluntarily or involuntarily, they're the smaller group of vegans, plant-based, anti-allergen, just general special nutrition need consumers that are already well-versed in the space. They get their information from experts within the scientific community and nutrition communities. And that audience we size to be approximately 115 million Americans, which is about 35% of the population. We expected this audience to grow. For example, between since 2017, about 57% of shoppers are looking for low sugar options, and that's up about 55% since 2017. Globally, this is an audience. So about 65% of the world population is considered to be lactose intolerant. And this audience, we call them the brand lover because they're the ones who are going to really advocate for us. And they're going to they're gonna be the ones who are going to be vocal and loud and extend our mission beyond what we could do ourselves. So the informed enthusiast is someone who is constantly leveraging social media and blogs to share their personal stories about the brands they've discovered and, you know, the things that they're just finding out in regards to diet and nutrition. And they're extending that message to the broader allergen community 
and the world. And our goal as a brand is to use the informed enthusiast's vocal strength to guide the lifestyle enthusiast, which is ultimately to spread our movement throughout the world. So lifestyle enthusiasts is more like our halo target consumer. Uh, we define them as really just the common humans of today, hardworking parents, students, uh, et cetera, people that are generally active without spending the majority of their time in the gym. Their approach to nutrition is passive, getting their information from those with prior knowledge, i.e. the informed enthusiasts, rather than doing the extensive research themselves. So we're going after two. We're using our cult audience to extend our message to uh, a more generalized audience. That is an incredibly detailed buyer persona. I love it <laughs> as a marketer. <laughs> That's great. And obviously, the wellness industry is huge in terms of influencers and yet yeah, that buyer that you're talking about. So do you have an influencer marketing strategy specifically or are you trying to do it more organically? Yes, the wellness industry is definitely, you know, one of those industries that uh, I would say tends to be very fickle because there's the barrier to entry is low outside of beverage. There's a lot of supply, a lot of potential manufacturing options out there when you're when you're dealing with, you know, bars or powders. Beverage is different because this, the supply chain landscape is is just you know, vastly constricted. But because of that, the behavior within the wellness industry, especially among the influencers, is one where they're constantly repping new items. And people are constantly looking for new items because they're always looking to just outperform or go above their plateau or find something better than, you know, what they had for the prior six months. So influencers were a huge part of our plan early on. Um, we actually launched the brand initially to go after the sports nutrition consumer and specifically the one who is really well-versed and informed enthusiasts and quickly very early on like literally within the first two months of launch using our data online we learned that our consumer was not that our consumer was really that about 80 percent female millennial more of a passive approach to nutrition and just working out and exercise etc taking that knowledge and also seeing that our conversion rate growth was really coming from email, we pivoted our dollars significantly toward the right influencer in order to get more traffic to our site so we could capture more data, capture more emails, and to begin to build out this journey. My belief is that, you know, impressions are like dating, right? Like I'm never going to expect somebody to come to the altar with us upon first impression. So email has been a really significant part of our journey because it allows us to build out reasons to believe and educate the consumer and just continue to date them. So then at the right time with the right message, the right consumer, we could get them to convert. And so email has been a huge part of our strategy. It wasn't out of the gate, but then we shifted the combination of influencers and their reach and their credibility and their ability to drive landing page views, our ability to capture data and our ability to use that data through email. That's what's really helped to drive our, our initial, uh, uh, push on direct-to-consumer early on. Really interesting. And so how do you get people to keep coming back? So, you know, you get them to your site, they convert, they sign up for your emails, maybe they buy uh, their first couple uh, shakes, and then then what? How do you keep them buying again and again? It all comes down to data. Data tells us so many things from cross-selling opportunities to when someone has lapsed uh, as a purchaser. But more importantly, it really begins with understanding our repeat rate and our repeat curve by day 
Um, and if a customer is lagging that repeat curve, we know there's an opportunity there to push a little bit to accomplish our ultimate LTV goal. So we are open to all forms of retention, whether paid and unpaid, and we're using this data to determine you know, what's the best form to retain our customer. So for example, what we've noticed is CACs are growing, obviously on paid social, because more and more brands are competing for your attention and overbidding. So you can't rely only on paid social for all of your marketing efforts. What this implies is that there are more brands bidding, right? More impressions being put out on your feed and your attention span is just, you know, overworked and your ability to remain within the consideration set for the consumer is challenged. So, you know, we've worked with retention formats such as direct mail, for example. It's snail mail. It's old. It's legacy. But it's a lot more impactful because we don't have to compete with the hundreds of impressions someone's getting served a day or a week because now we're getting direct mail, getting the brand directly in front of them, helping them feel a little bit special outside of a, you know, a scrolling thumb feed. It's funny. I've heard from multiple brands that are kind of cycling back to those what maybe you'd call old school marketing techniques like billboards, direct mail, that sort of thing because of that increasing cost. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you are obviously selling direct to consumer, but you're also sold through retailers like Whole Foods, which I found interesting. Uh, so what have been kind of the pros and cons of selling direct versus working with retailers? The biggest challenge with cross-channel strategy is preserving the price integrity across each of the channels because each channel has its own unique you know, economic structure, whether it be your route to market and the economic differences on the different route to markets the different customer margin challenges and implications there. So, you know, and then some customers are EDLP. They have an everyday low price strategy or BOGO strategy when it comes to promotions, which drives your average price down. This becomes, especially when it comes to cross-channel with an e-commerce brand, when you're dealing with customers that provide amazing value like a Costco or Walmart, the ability for these retailers to cannibalize your online business and to also drive such a great value that they could drive reselling online from third parties that are going to compete with you online, you know, that becomes real. The way that, you know, I've kind of approached this is it comes down to having a really disciplined channel strategy. And if we have our current original protein shake sold online, and it's currently sold in retailers like Whole Foods and Grocery, which don't really necessarily challenge our online uh, price value, but we also want to extend the brand into other classes of trade, such as club. Well, that requires a different item, right? A different item that we're not necessarily even going to put online, but we're going to put it on, in club so that we could provide a great value to the customer in that channel for that trip mission. So the way that we really see the brand kind of unraveling here is we have our original protein shakes. We just launched a meal replacement in July. And we have a dairy-free kids' milk option. And each of those three planks within our product architecture have a unique channel strategy. So we could get the brand into all classes of trade, uh, agnostic of what the pricing challenges or margin implications are, and allows us to, to still have a – or still preserve our online business by just being disciplined with where our online business is going when we bring it into retail. 
I think that's the most thorough strategy that I've heard regarding retail as well. So you're just killing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it it definitely is something that is a constant pressure, right? Because when you put a when you put a product or you know in one channel or one customer in a channel, it goes viral, right? Like other retailers see it, they see the performance, they have access to the data in that channel if that customer reports. And so they're going to want it as well. It just it's really comes down to, to being disciplined while also having, again, that that product architecture that allows you to offer a retailer an item from the brand without giving them the item that you might be, you know, that you might want to preserve online. Mm, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So now we're going into some of the fun questions that I like to ask everyone which is, uh, can you tell me about a time that you failed and what did you learn from it? Yeah. So when we initially launched Owen, the brand was positioned as, uh, against the sports nutrition enthusiast, uh, as I mentioned earlier, because naturally when you think protein, you think sports nutrition. And when you think protein plus sports nutrition, you think beyond just beverages and you also think powders and you think bars and just really you know, the different food and beverage platforms that extend to that uh, user's demand moments. The sports nutrition positioning drove some of our early route to market decisions and certain investments. But as I mentioned very quickly, like literally within the first two months after launch, the initial consumer engagement data very clearly demonstrated that the brand was resonating mostly with the lifestyle oriented millennial female. We quickly pivoted the brand positioning the marketing investments, and even the design to catch up to uh, where our consumer was telling us where they were. The learning that I really had from this is bottom line, there's so many emerging brands out there that spend a lot of money pre-launch, for launch, for design, for executional assets, et cetera, against a vision for who they conceive the consumer or the brand lover will, would end up being. Eventually, the best brands are the ones that evolve toward the brand lover versus the passive general halo consumer. And my philosophy there is, you know, what separates high repeat users versus low repeat users is the high repeat users have love and affection for the brand. And the brand lover associates the brands that they love typically in like an emotional context such as, you know, more aspirational kind of thing. So, you know, this product makes me feel bold or this brand helps me to feel empowered. Whereas, you know, low repeat users might associate the brand with more functional attributes, such as its shape or its texture or its flavor profile. We want to build the brand for the brand lover. Emerging brands want to build brands eventually for the brand lover. The best brands are the ones that pivot toward the brand lover. And so my learning is, you know, out of the gate, you just have to go. You don't have to be 100% perfect. You have to be 80% perfect, right? And leave a little bit of wiggle room so that the brand could uh, have some flexibility and some agility to eventually meet up with what the data is telling you. Mm. Yeah, that's a very fast pivot in just two months. So tough decisions, but it's smarter to move faster than, than to just keep thinking you know better than what your customers are telling you. Right, right, exactly. And so what do you think is going to be important for the future of e-commerce marketing? You know, you're talking a lot about how the cost of acquisition is going up, all of these different forces that are competing in the market. What do you think is going to matter in the coming couple of years? 
Yeah. You know, I really believe the future of e-commerce marketing is or has a dependency on the future of brick and mortar and where that's going. There's consolidation, uh, there's private labeling, and this is for, you know, f- across food and beverage. And there's more convenient shopping experiences that have driven potentially less trips to traditional retail and more trips uh, online. And that's what's ultimately led to the growth of the e-commerce channel. I think this trend is only going to be exacerbated within the next five years as as competition drives better and faster fulfillment on the e-commerce channel. So as e-com continues to grow and these pressures from brick and mortar continue to uh, be realized, competition is obviously going to grow. And competition is obviously going to come uh, faster into the e-commerce channel, including private label on e-commerce, as you're seeing with Amazon. So I see like a few massive implications because of the shift. On the acquisition side, CACs will grow and your LTV will likely decrease due to optionality, right? If there's more options online, you might not necessarily get three repeats per repeater, but it might go to two and a half because they're going to, the life cycle of that customer is going to not be fully realized. So the marketer's challenge will be out competing the natural LTV decline through just really a provocative storytelling, very unique and customized digital journeys and exceptional brand experience. Those are the things that are going to help to drive the brand mission, the brand message, uh, and the brand love for your consumer so that ultimately you could overcome these challenges and drive your LTV. On the D2C side, I think there will be many pressures that could consolidate shopping behavior to a few to just a few marketplaces online. Some of these pressures could be, you know, driven by the fact that if you go to a general marketplace, there's membership benefits such as Prime, or there's bundling opportunities, or there's shipping efficiencies, uh, sustainability efficiencies, et cetera. So the marketer's challenge is is going to be providing a real reason for being for your direct-to-consumer beyond just a transactional storefront. So again, coming back to building those customer experiences that enable engagement, transparency, truth, mission, conversation, those are going to be the things that give your D2C shop a reason to be in a time when a lot of brands are going to start to flood on the D2C side. So at the end of the day, whether it's acquisition-driven or D2C consolidation-driven, you know, I believe that it's all about building a brand story, telling that story, building very custom and unique uh, digital journeys, providing a great and exceptional brand experience. Those are going to be the things that allow a brand to succeed in a world where direct-to-consumer um, and e-commerce are going to be more and more challenged as more brands come into that space. So no pressure, marketers. you got to step it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so what about the future of Owen? Do you have any plans to add flavors, expand the product line? Uh, anything exciting that you want to share? Yes, yeah, so we're always, you know, reaching out to our, our customers, our best customers, asking them, uh, you know, what, what they would like to see. Uh, teasing certain ideas by them just to get some general feedback and uh, thoughts and data. And so we're always looking at new flavor ideas. You know, it, it, it typically what you see is the first three flavors within a beverage are highly incremental. And then flavors four, five, six are just cannibal. They just cannibalize flavors one, two, and three. But flavors four, five, and six provide excitement and they're refreshing and they change it up a little bit and they just expand the repertoire usage. So flavor play is always, you know, something that we're looking at. 
Um, and so we do limited time offers and, you know, different releases. And we're going to continue to look into that and continue to do it. Um, we just launched our mirror placement online uh, last month. And that was a really exciting launch for us. The rationale for why we launched that was, again, rooted in data. We saw a lot of impressions coming to us from large meal replacement beverage brands. So that was, you know, the world was telling us something. They were looking, nutrition, meal replacement shoppers specifically were looking for cleaner alternatives. And so that drove our decision to launch a meal replacement, which is uh, 300 calories, 23 vitamins and minerals at 20% daily value. Um, and it has 20 grams protein, four grams sugar. So it's just a very clean meal according to the FDA definition of a meal. We're going to continue to do flavor innovation there. And then we have a non-dairy uh, kids' milk. So our bullseye consumer is this informed, enthusiast, female millennial. Um, it's about 80% of our consumers today. They're, they're in the middle of parenthood these days. And, and so they have kids. And they're looking for clean options for their kids as well. You know, I've, I have two kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I'm not going to give them a 20-gram protein shake. But I would love to give them a kid's milk option that's flavored, eight grams of protein, uh, four grams of sugar, which has 80% less sugar than some of the leading flavored milks out there today. And all the while keeping our truth and transparency message with our labeling standards. So right now, those are our key planks. We're going to continue to innovate in them with flavor plays. And, you know, we'll see where the data, where the data drives our decision making. To learn more about Owen, you can go to liveowen.com. That's L-I-V-E-O-W-Y-N.com. I actually got a chance to sample the Owen products as part of this interview, and I can say they are delicious, so definitely check them out. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you lovely humans again in two weeks.